Good evening, everyone. A couple of brief comments. Hopefully, by July 1st, we may be seeing a groundbreaking up here on the Hill. Uh, we had a meeting yesterday, and we're talking about waiting until about April 1st to take a good long look at the first quarter of this year with regard to the income. And if all the signs and parameters are go, then at that time we will mail out a letter to all of you along the tape program who received an earlier letter about the church bond issue. And maybe it's very good that we're doing it or contemplating doing it at this time instead of last year when you stop to think about what has happened to an awful lot of people on fixed income or people who depend upon investments and have various savings or money market funds or mutual funds or what have you that they depend upon for their monthly income. Because all of you know that when interest rates fall, it may help first-time home builders or people who want to go borrow money for those needs, but it certainly doesn't help people who have stashed away their life savings and are living on that interest. It uh, sharply curtails what they have on a monthly basis. Hopefully at that time the church will be able to make an offer to those who purchase bonds that will be very much more attractive than any kind of interest you could earn in other money market funds or CDs or savings accounts or what have you. And at the same time, we would have to be able, in the sinking fund, to be able to pay it back on a monthly basis. So we'll be looking at all of those things, and hopefully by that time I'll be able to make an announcement. If you want to ask about how badly overcrowded we are, you ought to drop by and see Ian Hufton and his male readers and processors sometime. <laughs> and Rosie and the other ladies are all naughty. They're jammed in there like they're wedged in every morning with a shoehorn. And uh, we have seriously outgrown a lot of our facilities. One of the most tiresome things is that every Tuesday morning when I have to do television, my office becomes complete chaos. We sweep everything off the desk, uh, some of which I never find again. Uh, we turn it into a TV set, bring in the cameras, bring in the lights, and I sit there at my desk and I do TV, and when I'm through, we try to put everything back the way it was. And. Uh, in the winter, when the geraniums are dead and we forget to draw the drapes, it's kind of ugly behind me, and the window behind me reflects. So once in a while, if Mark is wearing a white shirt, he's got to go borrow somebody's dark jacket, or you can see his reflection moving around behind me, and you wonder what that is. So uh, we would like very much to be able to move into that new office building with television facilities and with larger facilities for all of our activities, uh, editorial for the tape and the bulk mailing. and all of those things that go on. And I would appreciate your praying about that. This morning when my daughter-in-law and son David came over for breakfast, I leaned down real close to Diana and I said, Hello, little Sonia. Can you hear me in there? Now we think it may be a girl. She had a sonogram and it was indicated that possibly it may be a girl. I've been told that parents who talk to children before they come out of the womb actually are heard to some degree. And the babies who are made nervous by a loud home and so on are affected even inside the womb. I don't know to what extent that is true. But I'll tell you one thing for sure. I want to be there the day that baby is born. I am really looking forward to hopefully a granddaughter. But if it isn't a granddaughter, as we told our daughter-in-law this morning. The main prayer is, even if it's a boy, just be completely perfect and healthy and everything in place right where it belongs. That's what all parents want. That's what the grandparents want. I want to be there when that occurs. Now to you I might be able to say, hello there, little new creature in Christ. 
Do you want to be there when the birth of what is being engendered and gradually is being developed in the spiritual womb of the church and in this prototype, this physical prototype of your body, which is eventually to be born into the family of God? Do you want to be around to see what that is going to look like? As Paul was asked, with what body do they come? And he said, thou fool. That which you sow in the ground is, whether it's wheat or whatever, is just bare grain, but it's not the body that shall come forth. It must die first and be completely consumed. You don't see the little tiny germ that puts down a root and begins to become a stalk of wheat or a great big stalk of corn that reproduces itself by thousands of fold and is absolute new wealth never before, never existed before, but comes from a little shoot, a little root, and that little root picking the nutrients from the soil, becoming an eight-foot-tall corn stalk in Iowa with several ears with literally thousands of kernels on it from just one little kernel of corn. Human birth is miraculous. There's something so fabulous about the reproduction of humankind and of a human being forming and developing in the womb of a mother. Now, on a day in history that I looked up this morning to refresh my memory, New Zealand was struck by an earthquake. There were 800 killed, 66,000 left homeless. Admiral Byrd on this day left Antarctica for the United States. He had been in Antarctica, and there was a great deal made in the newspapers and magazines about that. Down in Miami, Jack Sharkey knocked out Phil Scott in the third round. And New York City on this day installed its very first traffic lights in downtown Manhattan and explained in a newspaper article what the yellow meant. Sonia Haney was 17 and won her amateur singles figure skating title before a crowd of 13,000 in Madison Square Garden. And up in Portland, Oregon, Loma D. Armstrong delivered a little boy named Garner Ted. I looked that up this morning because I want to find out what else went on when that event happened to me. I was at a golf course down near Austin, and there was a sign over there that looked for all the world like one of the signs along Texas highways that says, Historical Monument. So I took my little golf cart and I drove over there, kind of in the front yard of one of these palatial estates, and there was a sign there that said, On this site, in 1862, nothing happened. <laughs> and I thought that was a real cute one. You know, if I had not been born on that day, all these other things I just read would have happened anyway. But you know, in some small way, here and there around this country, and in fact around the world, in the Philippines and South Africa, I have to look back over the last 38 years and realize, and I get a little bit goose pimply and a little bit overawed and a little bit conscious of an inordinate sense of responsibility, when I do realize that, that that day on which I was born has resulted in an enormous amount of change in a lot of lives over the span of many decades. And that for a time, for about 20 years, especially at the end of that 20-year span of doing the World Tomorrow program, up to 20 million American people per week were listening to me or watching me on television. And several million still do every single week. Now, why, I have to ask, and what for? 
You look at the chance we take in merely being alive. How in the world could those people in Indiana the other day have remotely imagined when they checked into that motel or were seated at a restaurant in a motel that a huge C-130 would come flying through the window and kill them all? How can anyone even begin to imagine that some terrible tragedy like that is going to occur? Let's turn to James, the fourth chapter. A little bit of mind conditioning here that James reminds us of. And he is talking about life and about the impermanence of life. James 4, beginning in verse 13. Come on now, or go to now, you that say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a city, and we're going to stay there a year, and that's where we're going to set up a business and buy and sell, make some money. Because you don't know what is going to occur tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. My sister Beverly, who is 12 years older than I, is battling cancer. And every time I talk to her, she is very depressed because of a protracted struggle with uh, her own father and being rejected by him early on in 1954-55 and being excommunicated from the church organization that she sang for on the early television programs in those years. Uh, she has some very great difficulty with facing what to her is really a meaningless, frightening black void. Now you sitting in these chairs who may understand what Paul says in First Thessalonians and other portions of the Bible, the fourth chapter there particularly, that we're not to fear as others who have no hope and that we're to understand about the resurrection and we know what death is, we know what happens when we die, we know what the next event is to be and we have it all clearly expounded and explained for us in Scripture. That's a comforting thing, but when you're in a situation where you're not really even dead sure positive that there is a God, or if there is a God, whether he is a, an ogre who is instantly angry and vindictive and exacts the last full measure of punishment, if you have a kind of a mixed up concept of oriental religion, uh, maybe a little bit from India and some from China and some from Japan and other philosophies that you've read. If you've read some of the great philosophers of the past, maybe Thoreau or Kant or William James or whoever, and your mind is in a confused state where you don't really have a sense of calm, a sense of safety and conviction about what's going to happen when you die, you can be very depressed indeed, very fearful. You know, the Bible talks about those who all their lives were subject to bondage through fear of death. Time and again, you've got to make the comment in our Friday morning prayer breakfast when we're sitting around the table reading the letters that come in, as I did a couple of times, and Mr. Dark did a couple of times, I imagine, on Friday. We'll be reading a very lengthy letter, oftentimes from an elderly grandmother. She'll be talking about cancer, about the loss of a husband, about the loss of a job, about to be kicked out of her mobile home, talking about all kinds of aches and pains, and sometimes it just goes on to where you can hardly believe all the problems people have. And also about my daughter-in-law who's being abused by my son, or about my daughter, please pray that she won't get pregnant again, repeat the same mistake she made. And by the time they've gone through about seven or eight requests they want you to pray about, including the next-door neighbor who can't get out of bed, you say to yourself, what they're really saying is, Thy kingdom come. They're saying, just heal everything. 
make everything better, get everybody well, make my life better, remove my pain, remove the suffering of my neighbor, just thy kingdom come. That's really what they're trying to say. But instead, they're giving you a sort of a series of things that need fixing. And it doesn't work quite that way always, but we take their petitions to God, and we get out of our chair and on our knees and ask God to intervene in these people's lives. So many people are living like that, and the question is, why? In Luke 13, verses, well, I think we didn't finish all of this. Let me just finish this right quickly. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, verse 14 of chapter 4 of the book of James, for what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, we'll both stay alive by tomorrow, and then do this or that, if God is willing. But you rejoice in your boasting, and all such rejoicing is evil, because even making plans and saying, I'm going to do thus and such, is looked upon by God as boasting. Let's go to Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, a familiar scripture to many of us. certainly reminds me of a couple of twins with whom I grew up, sang in various occasions all over Eugene, Oregon, through high school. They joined the Navy ahead of me and came to visit me in Pasadena, California in their uniforms, and right then I made up my mind to join the Navy. But they, one of them had just been married and the other was engaged and my wife and I had been up on a delayed honeymoon to Eugene, Oregon in 1953 and came back and the very next day in Temple City, California, I got a telephone call that told me that there had been a terrible accident. I said, oh no, were they hurt? She said, yes, they were killed. I said, both of them? She said, all four of them. Ronald and Donald Cokes were identical twins. They had begun dating two girls that had moved in next door, one of whom lived there with a the family, the other of whom was a close friend that came from back in the home state of the Cokes family in Nebraska. And one was married and the other one was about to be. When a drunk going home around a mountain curve had an old 1947 Hudson that became airborne over a divider and went inverted and hit as it was coming upside down right at the windshield level in that automobile and crushed instantly to death all four of those young people. I couldn't believe that. I think of the death of my brother, Richard David Armstrong, as I read this scripture. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, found them doing something that was forbidden by the government. And Jesus said, do you suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans? They were worse than anybody else, something really terrible, some secret sins in their lives because they suffered such things were these people up in southern Indiana, the worst people in the United States of America, the worst people in Indiana because that C-130 crashed into that particular building at that time. Christ says, no matter what some religious fanatics will tell you, I tell you, no. Now, I've heard it proposed out of the pulpit by ministers of the parent church that when Audrey Hill died, it was to punish John. Think about that spirit or that attitude that says, because I want to hurt you, I'm going to kill your wife. If that is the kind of God some of them worship, you and I don't want anything to do with that, do we? My own sister was telling me on the telephone just the other day, but it says God is love. They couldn't really understand that because of the teaching that they had heard so often and the way it devolved in our own personal family, the way it was in the family relationships between my father and my two sisters and that if we're to love even our enemies, and God says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
But we were always told, you've got to abhor yourself and hate yourself. And Ted, I couldn't do that. And I said, that's right. And you're not required to do that. So I'm dealing with a sister that is having a real struggle with self-image and with even having respect and that right amount of love and gratitude for herself. But who has been denied that particular emotion and really hadn't understood that you're not required to love your neighbor more than yourself, but as yourself. So Jesus said, no matter what some religious fanatic will tell you, that that kind of death, accidental death, death through an explosion, airplane crash, whatever, is just something that is time and chance and circumstance. He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise, not in the same manner, but you all will perish eventually. Or those 18, to show you a completely different example, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell, some ancient brick or mortar let loose, and down came a lot of cascading stones and crushed a lot of people sitting there in the shade, and slew them. Do you think they were sinners above all men that lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise just perish. Their deaths, you see, didn't mean anything. Their deaths didn't stand for anything. Their deaths were untoward, unexpected, accidental. Their deaths didn't make any difference. But what he's also saying is that their lives didn't make any difference either. There had been nothing all that special about their lives. Let's turn to the book of Psalms, to the 49th Psalm, where David gives us a good deal more of this mind conditioning. The 49th Psalm. And this is so true of so many people that I have known. Hear this, all you people, and give ear, you inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline mine ear to a parable and open my dark saying upon the heart. Wherefore should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about, when all of my sins have caught up with me and all of my financial entanglements and my wrongdoings and my mistreatment of people comes full circle, and here I am caught in the web of my own making. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in a the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For well, the redemption, he says parenthetically, of their soul is precious, and it ceaseth forever. That he should still live forever and not see corruption. You can't buy salvation or buy your way out of that kind of trouble. For he sees that wise men die, as Solomon was also given the wisdom to see. As the fool dieth, so dies the rich man. Likewise, the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to the government. Well, I'm just substituting that because, of course, that's the way it is today. Others can mean the government, and in our country it's what it means. If you, if you possess a lot of wealth, inheritance tax is going to take most of it away. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They call lands, buildings, street corners, towns after their own names. Nevertheless, man, being an honor, does not last very long. He's like the animals that die. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. I wonder what Marilyn Monroe looks like today. 
I see the calendar pictures. I have seen in many gas stations around the United States these smiling pictures of the so-called sex queen. But what does she look like today? You don't want to know. Neither do I. So it's purely a rhetorical question. But God will redeem my nephesh, as the word really is, my life, my soul is erroneous, my being, my life, from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies he will take nothing away with him. His glory will not descend after him, though while he lived he blessed his soul, and men will praise him or thee when you do well to yourself. He shall go to the generations of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor, got wealth and riches, a name for himself and fame, yet doesn't understand, is like an animal, like the beast that perishes. You and I are a marvelous, systemic, physical, metabolic being. We have sight. We're going to see an article by Mr. Dart in the coming edition of the... Uh, 20th Century Watch magazine and one from me on evolution. The two will be in tandem and will, I think, complement one another about the proofs of God's existence, about the marvels of the human eye. And I'm going to turn to Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, just ahead in the Bible a little bit as we're thinking about that for a moment, because I have been able to view many marvelous things in my lifetime, and I think some of them I remember in flying the Fanjet Falcon over some of the glaciers of Iceland some of the beautiful places of the world that I've been privileged to see down in South Island, New Zealand, for example, over the South Pacific when I was coming in for a landing at Wake Island and seeing that coral atoll and all the beauty out there. Many, many parts of the world, beautiful little villages high in the Swiss Alps, things that I've seen. I'd like to see them again. When was the last time you ever saw an old, old classic movie that you really used to enjoy? Once in a great while when an old classic movie is on, I'll say, oh, look, there's that old movie. It was made in the 1930s, and I'll watch it. A thought will go through my mind. Will I ever see it again? Is this the very last time I will ever see that old classic? And probably it was. Many of them I've forgotten all about. I don't remember them until they come around again about every 20 years. I probably won't be around, at least in this flesh, if the world goes on that long, which sometimes I doubt if that were to happen again. Chapter 1, verse 1, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? That is, in the long run. One generation passes away, and another generation comes along, but the earth abides forever. You can't pick up a rock out here on the side of the road in East Texas that is a bit younger than the stone used in the old pyramids of Egypt. The rock you pick up along the side of the road is older than the time of Christ. It is older than Nebuchadnezzar. It is older than Adam. It may have been here for billions of years. So even the stones beneath our feet are of antiquity. And George Washington was crossing the Potomac when that rock was lying around somewhere here in East Texas. The sun ariseth and sun goes down and haste to his place where he arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns about into the north. It whirls about continually, and the wind returns again according to his circuits. The rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence they come, there they return again. Everything is full of effort and labor. Man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing. I see a beautiful painting and I stand in awe because I paint a little bit and I've got some of my paintings hanging around the house. And when I see an absolute masterpiece, whether it's a landscape by Bierstadt or someone, or a portrait or something of that nature, I just say, how could the human hand produce such a fabulous thing? I have taken the magazine Southwestern Art, and I will look at some of those paintings, and you, at the first glance, would think the most marvelous professional photographer had taken a beautiful, clear photograph. And then you realize someone painted that, and it looks so realistic, it looks like a photograph and you marvel at the skill and the artistry. But that doesn't fill my eye. I haven't seen my grandson Michael for the last time. I have not yet seen my little granddaughter Sonia, if that's what she's to be, who is developing in the womb. My eye is not satisfied with seeing, and my eye has been looking around and seeing tomorrow for 62 solid years. Nor the ear filled with hearing. If we are blessed with having the gift of hearing, my son David is not, and his wife is back there interpreting to him right now. If the ear hears beautiful music, beautiful sounds, the laughter of a child, a bird singing in a beautiful morning like it was this morning, if you hear the mockingbird halfway through his repertoire outside in the tree, you don't want to say, that's the last time I ever want to hear that, never want to hear that mockingbird again. No, you really look forward to it the next time. The thing that has been it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there's nothing really new under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? Well, in the sense that it's different, it's changed because human hands take raw materials and make and form and shape things and sell them that may be, quote, new, but actually the materials and that which went into forming or shaping it is of matter, and that matter, as I said, is as old as a pyramid. You may not realize this, but every drop of water that exists has always existed. There's no such thing as new water. There is water at the bottom of the Marianas Trench and some of the deepest parts of the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean that have been sitting there virtually inert, never moving, for the last 5,000 years since the flood of Noah's time. Very old water. Now, if you doubt that, just go up and look at the bottom of a glacier when they can actually look at the striations and the laying down of certain inches of snowpack during the course of many, many years, and they've drilled to the core of the island continent. It looks much bigger on a Mercator projection than it really is, of Greenland, and have determined that Greenland has been so snowed upon and covered with an ice pack that the isostatic principle of the sort of liquid riding or buoying up of the continents on top the magma in the core of the earth has caused the center of Greenland to sag and that when they bore into the core of ice in the central part of Greenland they actually bore down below sea level to where the rock of Greenland has sunk beneath the level of the surrounding seas because the ice pack is so heavy. And they know that some of that ice at the bottom was formed thousands of years ago. And you could melt it and boil it and drink it. I'm just doing a little mind conditioning here. It's all I'm doing. I'm just doing a little mind conditioning about getting us in the proper perspective of time and place and circumstance with regard to where we were before we were here, which is nowhere, and where we're going when we leave this place. It's like I say, because I'm not that good a golfer, I'll sometimes step up and put the golf ball on the tee and say, I don't know where you're going, but you're leaving here. <laughs> and then there goes the ball. And then I go find it. Once I bought a wonder ball, and I said, that's because I wonder, after I hit it, where it went. So much for that. It says here that the eye or the 
sense of hearing is not filled, nor the ear filled with hearing. And that is true, too, of sound, of touch, of all of the sensory perceptions, of smell. It reminds me of the old grandfather. I've told the story before. Maybe a little bit of a, of a jibe at some of the Jewish people. It's not intended in that way by me, but it was interesting because he was supposed to be an extremist, and he was lying upstairs in the third floor of a walk-up apartment, and he was saying, Oi, baby, just to be able to taste once more grandmother's apple strudel before I die. He could smell, wafting up the stairways, grandmother's apple strudel she was fixing down in the kitchen. What is that she's cooking? Grandfather, it's grandmother's apple strudel. Oy vey, to be able to taste it once more before I die. I'm sorry, grandfather. Grandmother says it's for after the funeral. <laughs> so he was like we are. He really wanted to enjoy it just once more before he died, but uh, sometimes people have other plans. We are products. I'm a product of Herbert W. and Loma D. Armstrong. Little Sonia developing in the womb is a product of David and Deanna. And all of you are products of your father and your mother. You operate your brain at about 10% of capacity. If you want it for comparison purposes, say that I operate mine at 9%, that's fine with me, and you may be right. We actually are capable of far more than we think we are. We have our phobias and our fears. Some of you are afraid of spiders. Some women in here are afraid of mice and rats. If you see one running around your kitchen, you jump up on a chair. Some are afraid of the dark. Some are afraid of people who look differently, who are a different color, a different race, a different religion, speak a different language. In all ways and at all times, from the time we have been born and brought into this world, we have been defective. We have become, quote, educated. But since society is founded on lies, since all history is founded upon lies and is mostly interpretive and especially nationalistic and sometimes virtually xenophobic, much of what you learned in high school or thought you learned and in college about other people, about other places, about geography, about language, about religion, about art, about literature, is defective. It's incomplete. Your language is incomplete. Your experiences, incomplete. Your education, defective. And some of your experiences are very few, very limited, and very narrow. The other day I was discussing with a gentleman who asked me what I thought of the President's speech, and I said it was a time where somebody needed to say something that was absolutely Churchillian, that needed to promise the country that we could really look forward to nothing but blood, sweat, toil, and tears, and to call upon the American people to sacrifice. Well, this gentleman with a very narrow background, who may have read three books since he got out of high school in the 1950s and may not, called Churchill an SOB and said that he and Roosevelt conspired to get us in World War II and we never should have been in that war in the first place. Now, when you talk with someone whose education is that deficient, the conversation is over. There's nothing really further to say. I try to read almost 100 books a year. There are many people I have found in the church that have never read 100 books in their lives, and many people have never read five or six. There are many people who simply don't read. So the only point I'm making is that in all cases, in all facets of our development from the time we were born as a physical, metabolic, sensory, perceptive human being with a brain that is supposed to operate like a computer to store knowledge and to interrogate that computer and come up with that knowledge and then to sift through it and sort it out and come through a thought process that arrives eventually at a decision which brings forth action and therefore we live our lives. 
I'm pointing out that most of us are defective. We are incomplete. We are merely a physical prototype. Over in John, the third chapter, Jesus Christ put it this way. When Nicodemus came to him by night, and there's an article coming up on this shortly that uh, Mr. Van Stinson has been working on that will come up in an issue of the magazine, or perhaps we'll even do it in a booklet form. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You know, many of the mainstream fundamentalist churches, and I'm sad and sorry to say that now the worldwide church of God has joined them in a blatant, flagrant misinterpretation of Jesus' statement involving being born again. And they now state they are already born again. Well, they're not, but they think they are, like many Baptists think they are, and Methodists think they are, and Lutherans, and many, many other people, especially Charismatics, think they are already born again. The first time in history that such an expression had ever been heard, it's commonplace to you, isn't it? We know about that because Jimmy Carter claimed that he was born again, and his sister was a female evangelist, and she claimed to have been born again. And there are those who have been presidents of the country and members of Congress who claim to be born-again Christians. And people will actually ask you, have you been born again? But the first time that expression was ever used for all of its familiarity today was when Jesus said what he did to Nicodemus. The same Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He was also, we know from later scriptures, because he was with Joseph of Arimathea in begging the body of Jesus, complicit with some of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders who guessed or who suspected that Jesus Christ of Nazareth might well have been the true Messiah. He thought it was possible. Others rejected it, but Nicodemus did not. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Now, in saying we, he is not there saying we, all the Sanhedrin, is he? He's not saying we, all the Pharisees, is he? He's not saying we, all the Jews, is he? How do you know that? Well, you know it from all of the texts that you read throughout the life of Christ. Every time he came head to head with the Pharisees, with the scribes and the Pharisees, with the Sanhedrin, with the Jewish religious leadership, that they hated him. They called him an illegitimate son. They called him every foul name. They even accused him of being uh, faking miracles by Beelzebub and using satanic power. They demonized him. They attempted to kill him. So Nicodemus is not saying, we the Jews. He's not saying, we the Pharisees. He's not even saying, we the Sanhedrin. He's saying, we maybe Joseph of Arimathea, maybe two or three other people and himself, a cadre of Jewish respected, educated leaders who knew that Old Testament. Important point to put in your mind because of what you're coming to. Knew that language backward and forward. Could stand there, and that scripture I just read to you from the Psalms, they could have recited it orally and never missed a vowel or a syllable. There were many of them who could recite the entire book of Psalms. You know, just pausing for breath now and then. They had that ability. They were bilingual at least. This conversation very likely took place in Aramaic. It's possible, we don't know, that it took place in Hebrew, but more likely, because of the society, that it took place in Aramaic, which was, of course, that dialect of Hebrew that came back after Babylon that was developed. It was a Jewish dialect. Now. The same came and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. 
Now, the reason I brought out the language, and the reason I brought out his background, and the reason I brought out his skill in the Old Testament scriptures is so you will understand when Jesus Christ says something altogether strange and different to Nicodemus, that Nicodemus understood the word and the phrase and the manner in which it was couched, the syntax, and everything about Jesus' expression. And his reaction was not the reaction of some dumb dodo that didn't know the language, but the reaction of the individual I have just described to you. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, and every time he did that, it meant really of a truth. And that is a statement Jesus made when he is telling you, in a sense, what I'm telling you is absolutely pure, unvarnished truth. I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, is it true that unless little Sonia, if that's who she is, it's not her brother Sonny, comes forth, I will never see my grandchild? True statement, isn't it? All right, this also is true. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responded, How can a man be born when he is old? And then he went on and got a little bit detailed about it. He said, Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Do you need to be a Hebrew scholar? Do you need to be an Aramaic scholar, a Greek scholar, or even an English scholar to understand that in this conversation, Nicodemus took the word, whatever word Jesus used in Aramaic, Greek, or Hebrew, or all three, born again, to mean being born from the womb, coming out of the womb, patrician. Anybody have a question on that? Scholars do. Real scholars, intelligent people, they're smarter than you are, they're doctors. Some of them know as much Greek as an Athenian cab driver. You can ask directions of an Athenian cab driver. How do you get to the Acropolis? I don't know. I was picking a Greek. So you got to say, well, uh, i got to get a Greek interpreter. By the way, would you explain the Bible to me? You speak Greek. You know, the church used to be like that. If somebody came along and he spoke Greek, oh boy, a Greek scholar. So he can read things to you that all of these thousands of people who have come and gone before that were doctors of letters and all of these translators and people all the way back to Tyndale and Wycliffe and way before who have dealt with and, and translated and studied and understood and put out the diaglots and the, all the Westcott and Hort and all the lexicons and all this information about the Greek language and suddenly a taxi cab driver from Athens knows more than all those other people did. So sometimes when they go and get him a degree, some whole church will decide this guy is a Greek scholar. Well, boy, let's grab a hold of his garment and say, Thou art my teacher. Tell me what Jesus really meant. Well, what he really meant was, you must be born from above. Oh, well, how high is my stepladder? How do I get up above? Uh, how, how, do, how is this birth from above to come? How long do I tarry? What mumbo-jumbo do I say? Do I stand on one leg? Do I make a steeple of my hands? Do I put salt over my shoulder? Do I tinkle a bell? Do I pray for an hour? Do I fast for a week? How do I be born from above? Nicodemus could have asked a hundred questions if he'd understood Jesus to say born from above. But Nicodemus understood Jesus to say something that came out of a womb, didn't he? You've heard the twins are womb mates, you know. 
This is exactly what Jesus Christ said. And Nicodemus understood what Jesus said. And the church and my father and the parent church for 50 years and more understood the obvious analogy, and it was not my father's analogy, and it is not my analogy, of physical, human, begettal growth of the fetus and final birth to be separate from the mother and to begin to grow as a member of a family at the level of that family and understood that analogy to apply to the process of salvation and becoming a member of the kingdom of God and that the physical is a physical prototype of a spiritual process of begettal, of growth and development, of spiritual partrition or resurrection or instantaneously changed in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 51. You read of that in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for we shall all be changed and understood that that is the process of birth because the Bible actually says Christ was the firstborn among many brethren and was the firstborn from the dead. That's not an artificial analogy, but a biblical, a godly, a divine analogy. There are now approximately 150,000 being, human beings who are Sabbatarians, who observe the annual Feast of Tabernacles, who know about the spirit in man, who reject heaven as the reward of the saved, who reject an ever-burning hell, who understand all the mainline doctrines that you understand, who have been told by their leaders they're already born again. doesn't bother them because doctrine is not important to them. They just sit there and say, oh, have we been? Oh, okay. And that's that. What does that tell you about the degree of individual, personal conviction of what an individual believes in his heart of hearts and what makes him tick as a Christian? What is it to which he is faithful? Well, you can answer that easily. In the case of such monstrous changing in doctrine, he is worshiping what? an organization, a church, a church government, a church leader, a church hierarchy, a church social structure, cheerleading contests for his daughter, high school or college for his son, trips, the Feast of Tabernacles, whatever. But somehow it has all been removed from one individual stepping out of the shower wearing the same skin that he, well, changed a few times, but anyway, dressed in his birthday suit, as we say, with his own convictions, worshiping God. There's a very great difference. So, Jesus answered, Verily I say to you, that except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That does not need interpretation. You all understand that, whether you're talking about a whole basket full of speckled pups, whether you're talking about a little colt, or talking about yourself. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, when they adopt these fake and false doctrines, then they've got to go to labyrinthal, weird, all kinds of crazy explanations to get around Jesus' plain statement, that which is born of the Spirit is, is composed of, becomes spirit. What's forming in Diana's womb and the womb of any young expectant mother is flesh. You want to be born a fleshly baby, like I was, 62 years ago in the wee hours tomorrow. And like you were, in some cases, 70 years or 16 years or 6 years or whatever. 
And when you are born of the Spirit, what will you be? Now look at what Jesus went on to explain. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it will. And you hear the sound of it out of the, outside the eaves or in the trees. You can't tell where it came from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit, invisible like the wind. You don't need to be a Greek or Aramaic scholar. You can understand that even if we are operating at only 10% of capacity and me at 9%. I understand it. Don't you understand that? And Nicodemus said, how can this be? Because he was still puzzled by Jesus' statement. All right. We are products and we are merely a physical prototype. Do you want to be there when that moment comes? I said at the beginning, and by analogy talking to my little unborn granddaughter, if that's what she is in the womb, do you want to be there at the birth. Let's turn to Isaiah 66 in closing. Isaiah the 66th chapter. And look at a very beautiful chapter of Scripture, beginning in verse 5, that has very poignant meaning for us of this church. Are you a little child of God? Is there an unborn, precious little creature, a new creature in Christ, being formed within you? And do you want to be there? Do you want to see? what that's all about, and what you are going to be like, what your new body will look like. How would you like to break the first time you ever took a step, the world high jump record? All right. Hear you the word of the eternal, you that tremble at his word. You do not tremble at his word when you begin to manipulate it, when you begin to have fun with it, when you begin to play around with it. You are no longer trembling at it. You're no longer saying, there is his word, and here am I. You're saying, here am I, and there is his word. It's a whole different mindset about the word of God. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake. Now, does that ever ring a bell with some people? Said, let the Lord be glorified. I got rid of another Christian. I found the one little sheep and shot him right there with a three fifty-seven magnum. Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the eternal that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. This is talking about the church. Look at any of the commentaries and you will see. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Shall a nation be born at once? That's talking about the resurrection. It's talking about the time of instantaneous change. It's talking about the phenomenon of perhaps millions of beings transitioning instantaneously in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump from human physical flesh to members of the very family of God. A nation being born at once. For as soon as Zion, typical of the church, travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring forth to the birth, or shall I bring to the birth, bring it up full term, and not cause to bring forth, says the Eternal? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says God? Isn't this a process? Isn't it obvious what he is doing? Is he going to go back on his word? Rejoice you with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her, speaking again to the church, Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. Is there anything more absolutely beautiful than a sweet, precious, six-weeks-old baby at her mother's breast? 
Notice this language he uses, that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, like a mighty flowing beautiful stream, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall you suck and be born upon her sides as a baby would be carried and be dandled upon her knees. Isn't it fun to take a little kid and put them on your knee and grab a hold of them and say, here we go like a horse and so on, and they just giggle and have such a great time. And God is describing his own children this way, describing the rebirth, describing the entire church being born of God in that loving, beautiful scene of a mother and a father with a newborn babe. And it shall come to pass, or as when his one whom his mother, I'm sorry, verse 13, comforteth, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. When that day came, when you were born, regardless as to what was happening anywhere else in the world, it was a day known to God. You are not here in this room at this time accidentally. This is not a chaotic accident that is taking place here today. It is something that has been studied, something that is quite deliberate, something that is a pattern, something that is a part of your life, something that was intended. When I see my next grandchild born, boy or girl, I'm going to rejoice. I want to be there at the day of that birth. But even more so, I want to be there at the day when I am born into the kingdom of God and my sons, and for the first time in their lives, David and Matthew will hear me say, Hi, David. Hi, Matthew. And I'll hear Christ say, Hi, Garner Ted. <laughs>